you would, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to look at this morning verses 1 through 8, continuing our series on marriage, family, and the gospel. I will let you know on the front end of our time together that the theme of this morning's text is this. Sex inside of marriage is a good and God-given gift, whereas sex outside of marriage is a sin against God. Now, I will do all that I can to exercise discretion in the time that we have together, but if you have little ones that are alongside and you would wish to remove them, I will certainly understand you're doing so. I firmly believe that the issues that we have been addressing over the past few weeks and the issues that we will address this morning are of critical importance. In fact, I'm convinced that Satan has a direct interest in confusing hearts and minds with regards to marriage and family. I, I have been over the past week a very, very sick man. I, I don't want to over-spiritualize things, but I am convinced that at least a part of that is some degree of spiritual warfare related to what we're dealing with and where we're headed here as a body. I believe these issues are just that serious. And so I, I hope that you will hear well what our text teaches and that you've been hearing well and will continue to hear well over the next days and weeks. And I, I will note here that I am quite encouraged at the feedback from the past two services and what God seems to be stirring in the hearts of our people. I want to invite you to join me as we read together 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse, verse 1. If you would, stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says here, now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another sexually, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say the following as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were just like me, but each has his own gift from God, one person in this way and another in that way. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with desire. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Not since the Roman Empire, and maybe not even in the Roman Empire, has there been a culture as confused, as perverted, as mixed up in its understanding of sexual fulfillment and sexual ethics as our current culture. There is an inordinate amount of confusion and craziness and perversion with regards to sexual immorality, what sexual morality looks like, what sexual fulfillment should 
be like in our culture today. And whether we like to admit it or not, that culture is pressing its influence into the body of Christ in some pretty powerful ways. Now I want us to push back against that today, against a culture that invites us to fulfill every sinful lust of the flesh in this search for the satisfaction and fulfillment that we continue to be coached, we will ultimately find if we'd only give ourselves over to carelessness and cast off all restraint. Now, now that influence exists in some very powerful ways in the church, but there, there is an opposite influence that exists as well. One that has prevented us from speaking clearly or speaking forcefully about these issues. In response to the sexual revolution and the culture's perversion about us, the church has in many instances taken this Victorian view of, of sex that just says it is universally bad. And so while on the one hand I want to say with force that sex outside of marriage in any shape, form, or fashion is a sin against God. A sin that draws the wrath of God. A sin that bears consequences, not just in the life to come, but even in this life bears consequences. At the same time, I want to celebrate the remarkable gift that sex inside the bonds of marriage is for us, given by God. The marriage bed is not defiled. And we've got to train ourselves to be able to say this appropriately but powerfully to our children and our grandchildren because it's being screamed in their face by the culture that satisfaction and fulfillment can be found in all of these ways. And then we just say in response to that, sex is bad because we don't want to have the talk, which I get, like the talk is not an easy talk to have, right? Like at my house, I just bought a book. So I don't have to look him in the eye and I don't have to form the words in my mind. I just read it off the page. And we sort of press through that awkwardness and then we're able to have a little bit of a conversation, you know. But I, I get the difficulty. But somewhere along the line, we've got to learn the ability to say that this is a God-given gift to be enjoyed, satisfaction and fulfillment to be expressed and experienced within the bonds of marriage. And Paul is addressing these issues in our passage. Look at verse 1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. So, let's set a little context here. And chapter 6 really helps us to see some background, which we won't have a whole lot of time for. But, but the gist of the issue is this. The, the church at Corinth, in fact, the culture at Corinth, is, is really probably more similar to our culture than, than any other culture that's addressed in the New Testament. In, in Corinth, sexual immorality was rampant. In fact, to be from the city of Corinth was turned into a verb in Greek culture. If you said that person is a Corinthianizer, what you were saying is that person is a person who practices sexual immorality. So the city of Corinth was, was in the minds of people in the first century inseparably connected to sexual immorality in every shape, form, or fashion. There were situated in the city of Corinth uh, temples, pagan temples, where temple prostitution was practiced, both same-sex and heterosexual temple prostitution being practiced. Sexual immorality was the thing in the city of Corinth. 
The product of that is a great deal of confusion, not just outside of marriage, but also inside of marriage with regards to how sexual ethics should be understood or formed within our mind. Now, the gospel has come to, to Corinth. And when the gospel comes, new perspectives come. Gospel perspectives come. Our worldview is shaped. It is changed radically by the gospel. When the gospel lays hold of the human heart, what comes with that is gospel perspective and gospel worldview. So that now our understandings of sex, marriage, and family, and all other things is now shaped by the gospel, not what we're being pressed in upon by the culture itself. So the church is trying to flesh this out in the city of Corinth. And in response to the, the lustful desires and their fulfillment within the Corinthian culture, the church has just said, Here, we're going to go the way of celibacy. This is the best for us. Everyone is going to remain single. Everyone is going to refrain from sex in any shape, form, or fashion. We're not going to give ourselves over to that. We're going to remain celibate. Now, what Paul acknowledges in response to that in verse 1 of our passage is that, yes, it is good to be single and be celibate. Now, I want to note that that's probably refreshing in the ears of some single people here this morning. To be single and celibate is a good thing. In fact, Paul is going to acknowledge later in our passage that this is a giftedness from God. Down in verse 6, he says, I say the following as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were just like me. But each has his own gift from God, one person in this way and another in that. There are some people who have what I like to call the gift of singleness. In other words, they have the ability to remain single and to remain celibate without struggling against the temptation towards sexual immorality. And God grants the gift in order that we might devote ourselves in singleness exclusively to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have that gift, and the result of that is I got myself married. But I will acknowledge that in ministry, there are limiting factors when it comes to marriage. There are responsibilities that I bear as a husband and a father that limit my ability to do ministry in certain ways. In fact, I encourage brother pastors, and I try to remind myself often, that what I'm able to do in ministry, my performance, my, my contribution of time and energy in ministry is not set by my abilities. It's set by what my wife and family can bear with. It's, it's that critically important. So marriage and family is a limiting factor when it comes to ministry. It's not, a, it's not a bad thing. It's just the reality of where we are. And what Paul is saying is that rather than chiding or being critical of those who are single or remain single, we ought to celebrate the gift of singleness for those that have it, that they're able to devote themselves exclusively to the gospel without concerns for a wife or family or the responsibilities or obligations that come along with that. It is a caution to us that we need to be careful about trying to play Cupid with all of our friends who don't yet have husbands or wives. It might be in some instances that that individual has the God-given gift of singleness and is able to navigate the difficulties of life without a marriage partner and to give themselves exclusively to the advancement of the gospel. Paul is a prime example 
example of just that. Another that comes to mind, a name that you'll recognize in Baptist life is Lottie Moon who lived her whole life without marriage, gave herself unto death for the advancement of the gospel, even to the ends of the earth. So what Paul is saying here is, on the one hand, we should celebrate singleness. Now, even within this Greco-Roman culture that existed in the city of Corinth, there is a Jewish influence that says, well, if you're not married, then something's wrong with you, right? And that's kind of where we can land if we're not careful. And we need to be resistant to that as well. But Paul goes beyond that. Because if we're being honest here, not everyone has the gift of singleness. In fact, it is a relatively rare thing. Paul acknowledges as much in verse 2. He says, but because sexual immorality is so common... In other words, because there is this natural human desire for sexual intimacy and fulfillment... Because most people do not have the ability to refrain from some manner of sexual immorality apart from the institution of marriage. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. In the same way that Paul says in verse 1 that being single and celibate is a good thing, which, by the way, also means that being single and not celibate is a bad thing. Sex outside of marriage is not a, not a rite of passage in this country. It is a sin against God that bears consequences eternally and in the here and now. He goes on to say now in verse 2 that being married and enjoying the sexual fulfillment which comes with marriage is a good and praiseworthy thing. I have counseled with people over time who heard for all of their Christian upbringing, sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad, that once married, once in a relationship where sex is not only appropriate but honorable and worthy of praise and celebration, they then struggled to make that transition from sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad to the marriage bed is undefiled. Paul says because of sexual immorality, if you don't have the gift of singleness, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. If you don't have the gift of singleness, you ought to be looking for a spouse. That's what Paul says. Now, the challenge within our culture is that we have this sort of assumed process whereby we mature into adulthood and we find for ourselves a spouse. And here's how it goes. You graduate high school at 18. Now I would have you to note here that we're at step one of the process and we're already in trouble. Moms and dads, you might not be comfortable with this reality, but by 18, most kids in the United States of America have already succumbed to the temptation to sex outside of marriage. Most, most, in fact, the overwhelming majority. And that's just step one in our assumed process, right? Step two is you go off to college which you spend the first two years blowing your parents' money trying to figure out what you want to do, and then you're 20, and then you spend the next four years actually getting the degree that you hoped to be going there to get two years prior. But if it works out, it's usually a six-year deal, right? That's the way it works out for most folks. And now you're 24. 
But if you really want to set yourself up for success, then you establish yourselves financially and you find the job, the career that you're going to enjoy before you say your I do's. And now you're 25, you're 26, you're 27. And you're 15 or more years into struggling against the lust of the flesh. Now, I get that the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of, the, the fruit of self-control. I got all of that. Self-control ought to be exercised. And there's a time for self-control. But there's also a time for sound reason. And it is an unreasonable expectation in, in from my point of view, that a young man or a young woman would wrestle for what is at that point more than half of their life against a very natural desire that God has given them. Now, there are extremes on both ends of this thing. We've said for years at our house in jest, when the boys start smelling, when they start stinking, they need to start looking for a wife. They need to be, they need to be looking for a partner. They need to be looking for a job and a partner. That's what they need to be looking for. If you don't have the gift of singleness, you need to stop trifling around with sexual immorality and begin to think seriously about in entering into the institution of marriage where there is an outlet for the natural God-given desires that he has given us. Now, I get there's balance here. There's a place for wisdom and discernment ought to be exercised. But the gist of the passage is this. If you don't have a spouse, nor the gift of, of singleness, you ought to be looking for a spouse. Now, Paul goes beyond that in verse 3. He says, a husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife doesn't have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband doesn't have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Husbands, you have a unique responsibility to meet the sexual needs of your wife. A part of what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church is meeting just those needs. Wives, you have a unique responsibility to meet the sexual needs of your husband. And a part of what it means to submit yourselves to him as unto Christ is to meet those needs. A part of every healthy marriage is mutual sexual satisfaction and fulfillment. And there ought to be a sensitivity to the needs of your spouse and an effort on your part to meet those as best you possibly can. The wife has a special responsibility to meet the, the, to the sexual needs of her husband. And likewise, a husband has a special responsibility to meet the sexual needs of of his wife. Be careful that this is honored and observed within your marriage. Now, there was a time for me in ministry when I thought that probably the most consequential sin, the expression of sexual immorality that bore itself out most often in marriage was the sin of premarital sex, having sex outside of marriage. Because here's the deal. It may be that you eventually marry that person that you're sleeping with outside of marriage, but that does not mean that you will escape the consequences of those sinful decisions. 
In fact, that's the line of the 17-year-old boy in the throes of passion, right? We're going to eventually get married. And he's lying like a dog and he's low down. And you ought to just break up with him and not talk to him again. But that can be her line at 17, 18, 19 as well, right? And she's lying and low down and you ought to break up with her and not talk to her again. But it, it, really, it really does not matter what you do after the fact. Those chickens are coming home to roost. And I'll give you one of the best evidences of the dreadful consequences of the prevalence of sex outside of marriage. The simple fact that in a culture where we're constantly being coached, that finding sexual fulfillment is about casting off restraint, giving in to the moment, doing what we want to do. You can't watch five minutes of television without some kind of pharmaceutical advertisement spilling or selling a pill that's going to help you to enjoy what God gifted you to enjoy in very natural and wholesome ways. There's something very warped and perverted about that experience, that phenomenon in our culture. And it is the direct product of our being saturated not only in pornographic imagery, but also in sexual immorality in a variety of expressions, not the least of which is sex outside of marriage. I used to think that that was perhaps the most consequential expression of sexual immorality in our culture. But I have come to experience over the course of time in counseling that it's not only the prevalence of sex outside of marriage that's a danger to marriages and families. It's the absence of sex inside of marriage that is such a grave danger to marriages and families. And you're going to have to come away from this Victorian understanding of sex that just says sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. And embrace the notion that indeed this is a gift from God given for us for our pleasure, for our enjoyment, for our gladness of heart. God has given this gift. The marriage bed is undefiled. And in appropriate ways, in appropriate ways, hear that caveat, in appropriate ways, there's got to be an effort on our part as moms and dads at modeling the reality that we enjoy one another as a husband and wife, as a mother and a father for our kids. I'll give you, I'll give you a dad pro tip that I've learned recently. My kids are terrible about reading our messages. I hate for someone to stand over my shoulder, and I hate for my kids to pick up. And you know, you know, you get a part of the message when it comes up on the phone. Here's what I've learned. If you'll put a little spice on those romantic texts that you send your wife, your children will never read your messages again. <laughs> they might lose some sleep, but they will never read your messages again. Somehow, some way, we've got to teach them that not only is sex outside of marriage a bad thing that bears incredibly bad consequences, we've got to at the same time be able to celebrate what a gift it really is within the confines of marriage. We've got to learn to say better, the marriage bed is undefiled. So Paul clarifies in our passage that, yes, being single and celibate is a good thing. He goes on to note, secondly, that being married and enjoying the sexual fulfillment which comes with marriage is a good thing. And then helps us to see, thirdly, 
that being married and celibate is a bad, bad thing. Look at verse 5. Paul says, don't deprive one another sexually except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the only time that you ought to deprive one another sexually is when you have mutually agreed that we are going to set apart this time to give ourselves over to prayer. And when that time has come to its end, you should come together again quickly because when you are deprived of the intimacy God intends for you to enjoy as a husband and a wife, you are in a vulnerable, vulnerable position. You're in a position that Satan can take and tempt and beset you in your walk. Do not deprive one another sexually except when in agreement for a time. And this is an agreement that's arranged around the idea that we're going to give ourselves over to prayer or to fasting for a season. Now, I said a moment ago that I have come to understand something of the great danger that this is for marriages, the absence of sexual intimacy. And there is a part of me that struggles to really understand that, but I am fully aware that this is a phenomenon experienced far, far too often. Now, the danger is that when there's some friction, when there is some tension, our tendency is to pull apart, right? When the communication is not what it needs to be, when the time together is not what it needs to be, and that'll get you, right? The hectic nature of our schedules, the busyness of life, and, 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 and he's most always compliant, but you got to have some time and commitment and communication and fellowship or she ain't with it, right? And, and, and so if there's friction, the tendency is to go in opposite directions. And here's what I want to say to you. Sometimes your natural inclination, what you are inclined to do, what your heart leads you to do is the absolute wrong thing, the worst thing that you can possibly do. When there's friction, when there's tension, when there are difficulties, rather than running away from, from one another, the best thing that you can do is run together. The best thing that you can do is to run together. Now, you may be surprised by this or maybe even disappointed in this, but more often than not, when I counsel with couples who are having struggles in their marriage, I give them three pieces of advice. Read the Bible together, pray together, and be intimate together. And it is amazing what can be resolved under those circumstances. I, I, I would add to that because uh, I, I, have, I have no doubt that I'll be talking to couples. There are couples here this morning who have not been together for some season. There's been some struggle within your marriage and you just sort of drifted apart. And even the idea of that coming together again that way will be an awkward and challenging thing for you. There, there is a certain vulnerability and openness that comes with praying with your spouse and reading the Bible with your spouse that is romantic and attractive. And it has a way of pulling us together in some pretty powerful ways. If you struggle in that area of your life, you don't, you don't begin necessarily with the sexual intimacy component part. If you'll begin together as a couple, reading the Bible together and spending that time in prayer, there is again a vulnerability, an openness that comes with that experience that may very well help to overcome that awkwardness that's sort of built up over time as you've been separated from one another in this way. 
I'm I'm talking far too often with couples who 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 are months and years and sometimes many years absent any intimacy in their relationship. And here's what I want to say to you. Any any marriage, and and this is apart from some mutually understood physical condition that would prohibit sexual intimacy, apart from that, any marriage that is absent sexual intimacy is a marriage that is in a dangerous place and, and very, very much in trouble. I'm not telling you that marriage is all about sex, but I am telling you that sex should be a regular part of any healthy marriage. And what the Bible makes abundantly clear in our passage is is this, a marriage without sexual intimacy is vulnerable to Satan's attack. It It just is. So this is a natural and healthy and wholesome part of the husband wife relationship that ought to be enjoyed. God's gift to us for our pleasure, for our joy, for our satisfaction. And we don't have to be timid or embarrassed or ashamed of that experience. It is God's gift to us. We ought to steward that well, right? We ought to celebrate that. And part of discipling our children and our grandchildren is helping them to enjoy a biblical sexual ethic as well. I get again the awkwardness, the difficulty of those conversations, but if you're not having them, in all likelihood, they are falling victim to the indoctrination of our culture that sex is expressed in all kinds of ways. One of the things that you will note about what the Bible says concerning sex and marriage is is that our, our, our primary interest here, listen to what Paul has said. Consider the way this is framed. A wife doesn't have the right over her own body, but the husband does. A husband doesn't have the right over his own body, but the wife does. So so the American sexual ethic is that sex is about your satisfaction and fulfillment. But the biblical sexual ethic is that sex is about the fulfillment of the spouse that God has entrusted to your care. That is a fundamental and radical shift from what the culture would teach your children. Just that, what may seem a subtle shift, is a considerable shift away from the way the world would have it done. Guys, we we can continue to be timid and bashful and back away from these conversations if we want. I don't know that you're aware of this, but we are losing on this front. And I don't mean that, that we are losing in terms of our numbers, our ranks are shrinking. I mean our children, members of the body, are succumbing to every expression of sexual immorality imaginable. And we are twiddling our thumbs and refusing to speak of these issues. These are considerable issues. What we have described this morning, this outlet for this natural desire that God has given us, is the only acceptable expression for this need in, 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 God's, in God's constitution for mankind, right? And here's, here's what I know. I know this. I know this with absolute certainty. If I weren't a Baptist and a betting man, I'd bet you my savings account. In, in this gathering of people, there, there are those who are secretly, quietly, maybe no one else knows, but God knows, are, are finding satisfaction and fulfillment in cheap and fleeting ways 
through internet pornography. Within this congregation, there are young men and young women and maybe some not so young men and young women who are finding counterfeit satisfaction in sex outside of marriage. There are those who are struggling finding counterfeit satisfaction and fulfillment, leaving them riddled with guilt and shame and even self-disgust in some expression of same-sex attraction. And what I'm saying to you this morning and what I want you to hear clearly from this passage is that although sexual immorality can express itself in a variety of ways, and the attacks of Satan can be tempting and enticing, and the counterfeits that this world sells sure seem good on the surface, that there is real joy and pleasure and satisfaction and lasting, guilt-free, eternal satisfaction to be found in Christ and the institution of marriage he has afforded unto us. Come to Jesus and drink deeply from the fountain of the water of life. I want you to know that, that what Jesus has done for us has afforded us even more than the eternity that awaits us. I think sometimes we get in our mind that Jesus is our fire insurance to keep us from going to hell. And we're just holding on in the here and now, bearing with this puritanical lifestyle, free of any gladness and joy. But what Christ intends for us is abundant life in the here and now. God is not the wicked taskmaster handing down rules and regulations to rob us of any pleasure in this life. He knows just what is best for us. He knows the fuel that makes the engine run at its optimal rate. What he's prescribed for us is a lifelong intimate relationship with a husband or wife enjoying the fruits of marriage, all of the fruits of marriage, the fullness of pleasure and joy and satisfaction, a pleasure and joy and satisfaction exclusive to that covenant relationship. He's inviting us not only to himself, but to the fullness of joy we find when we walk with him and in his word. Brothers and sisters, come away and come to Christ. I, I have been both encouraged and a little surprised at, at the number of people and the level of honesty that I've, of, of those folks who've spoken with me after the first two services. And I got to tell you, my, my expectation that these issues are prevalent was was spot on there are couples in this room struggling with the very issues that we've talked about my challenge to you is to shore up your marriage love your husband love your wife and love them well see to it that their needs are being met that you're enjoying the fullness of pleasure that god intends for us within the confines of marriage. And I'll say to you in closing what I've said a few times already in this series. I know that marriage and family issues can be tricky and they can be difficult and they can seem insurmountable. But there isn't a soul in this room with a problem that the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot fix. We need only to come away from the things of this world and oh how the things of this world are crazy. And come to Jesus to make right what we have made 
so, so wrong. Often, I talk with couples who just feel they're so distant. How can this be right again? And I, I always go to that principle that Jesus offers in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You, you may be here this morning. Some of you fought on the way to church. I know what Sunday morning looks like. I got, all, I got three kids. I know what Sunday morning looks like. And, and, you, and you may think, I don't know if we can make this right again. If you'll invest your time and energy in making it right, if you'll invest your time and energy in him or her, eventually your heart will follow after your investment of time and energy and God will restore by grace the years the locusts have taken away. But it simply cannot happen unless or until you repent of your stubbornness of heart, put a line in the sand and say this far and no further. We're going to walk together with Jesus for the rest of our days. Would you make that commitment here this morning? You really don't have a lot of alternatives, right? You're either going to get it right or crash and burn. And, and I know Satan can work in that as well. And you can begin to look across the fence and the grass is always greener over there. But you're going to wake up the day after the big D with the same issues and the same problems and the same challenges you had the day before. And you find another one and he or she is going to, is going to reintroduce the same challenges and the same issues and the same problems that the last he or she had. At some point, we're going to have to come away from our stubbornness of heart, break down our pride, yield to the convicting work of God's Holy Spirit, and resolve to do what God in His Word has instructed we would do. Let's commit ourselves to do just that. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your Word and for its truth. Thank you that you are the all-knowing God, the God of all wisdom. God, we acknowledge and confess our foolishness before you. God, while you've offered us everlasting life, a spring that's bursting forth with the best of water, our tendency is to run to broken wells, to drink from empty cisterns. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us of our ignorance that you'd break our hearts over our sin, that you would make right what we have made so wrong, that you'd restore the years the locusts have taken away. God, I, I pray that you would bless our homes, our marriages, our families, our children. Help us to love one another well in every way possible. God, I pray that you would have your way in these next moments, God, that you would grant conviction that you would help us to know what repentance looks like, that, that you would help us to love well in ways that, that we've not for so long. There's an awkwardness or certain challenges there, God. Forgive us where we've come short and, and grant us the grace to press forward. In Jesus' name, amen.